This morning, we're in Haggai, and we're in, uh, what is this, our ninth week together in this series through the Minor Prophets. And man, do we have an opportunity this morning with Haggai. I hope your Bibles are open with me, and if they're not, go ahead and find one, open it up, and let's share together. In Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah, uh, we're looking at that next week. These two prophets were contemporaries. They both prophesied after the return of the Israelites from exile. We've been talking about that. We've been talking about judgment coming down over and over. You know, the the Syrians came, and then the Babylonians came and took off the southern kingdom, and they all went off into exile. Well, some of the minor prophets are actually about after all of that happened, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and, and then a remnant returned. And this is where we are. This is where these prophets are. Haggai, Zechariah. As we've seen in the other prophets, the Lord is judged, but the Lord also, he judged them because of their rebellion and their sin, but also because of their failure to repent and to turn. So he sent them off in judgment, but he also promised to gather them after he had scattered them among the nations. So both Haggai and Zechariah are encouraged, are there to encourage and to call and equip the returned exiles, to be faithful in this new season in Israel, in Jerusalem. A couple dates for those of you who are paying attention to this sort of thing. The first wave of exiles returned in 538 B.C., about 12, uh, I'm sorry, 22 or so years later, the temple is finally completed. Now, that's a problem. 22 years without the place where the worship of the Lord is, is instituted, where the presence of the Lord is manifest, and where the sacrifices uh, take place. This is a problem, 22 years. So here we are in verse 1. Verse 1 in Haggai goes like this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I'll be honest, I don't keep a calendar based on the reign of Darius. I'm not sure exactly when that was. So some people who are smarter than me did the math, and they figured out that verse 1 takes place in about 520 B.C. This is a huge problem if you were listening or could hear or were reading along with the reading of the word this morning. That means that from 538 B.C., all the way through 520, the building of the temple was being neglected while the people were establishing themselves in the land. That's a problem. Now, just four years later, the temple is built. What that tells me right at the front is it worked. It worked. Haggai's prophecy wound up calling the people to faith and faithfulness out of that faith, and they wound up building the temple. Along the way, I've told you that uh, one of the things I want to give to you is, as I want to give you the letter, there's no way we're covering all of Haggai. I tried. I wrote sermon notes for all of it. I'm like, that's an hour and a half. There's just no way. So we're only going to cover really the first sermon uh, in, in this book because this book is, is organized into four sermons. Each sermon begins with, and, and Haggai uh, had a word from the Lord on this particular day, and he shared that word with with uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, each of 
the times that it happens, it's a, it's a new sermon. Two of the sermons actually happen on the same day. Maybe it's like a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service or something. Um, but there are four sermons. And I want, it, want you to go with that. I want you to go home and know the order so you can look at chapter one is all that first sermon. And that first sermon is the Lord makes a dispute with the returned exiles. And then you can turn to chapter two and see that chapter two, verses one through nine, is another sermon. The Lord encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. The governor is he's not a king because, well, there's, there's still an empire, Persia, to deal with. He can't quite be a king, but he's a king in the line of David, that's for sure, as we see at the end in the fourth sermon. But the Lord encourages them, tells them to be strong, tells them to fear not, tells them that the Lord is with you. In the third sermon in Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19, the Lord explains the spiritual corruption that defiles worship. This is exactly what James was sharing about in the prayer of confession. That it's not about a, a, a series of rituals to go through. You can actually corrupt a holy thing by a defiled thing. That, that defilement is transferable. Where holiness winds up not being transferable, defilement is transferable. And then we have the fourth sermon, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, where the Lord chooses Zerubbabel. And he points to his Davidic line, and he affirms that the Lord is going to work divine purposes through a coming Messiah. It's going to happen. There is a Savior that's not a governor. Oh, he's a king. And, and you'll notice it's not addressed to, to Zerubbabel and to uh, Joshua, the high priest, because that guy... He's going to be the priest king. He's going to fulfill all of the divine offices. Here's how Richard Taylor, one commentator, uh, summarizes Haggai. I'm just trying to give you handles to go home and have this book to take up and read. He says this, The overall purpose of the book of Haggai is thus quite clear. It's four messages to seek to stir the people of Judah to turn from their self-centered ways and to undertake with God's help the restoration of the Jerusalem temple so that the Lord may once again uniquely manifest himself in the sacred space, in the sacred place, that God would manifest, that he would be present with the people. If they will present themselves to him as a pure people, the Lord promises divine enablement for their task. He promises unsurpassed glory for the temple and elevation of a Davidic heir to lead the people in triumph over their enemies. And friends, we have a little inclination as to who that Davidic heir actually is. This morning, we're gonna focus on the first sermon in which the Lord makes a dispute with these returned exiles that they've neglected the building of the temple far too long. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us attention. I pray that you would help us to incline our ears to wisdom in your word this morning, that we would search the scriptures, that we would listen to the story that is told throughout the whole of the story of redemption recorded for us in your word. That your spirit would give us faith to receive and that we would go with your word in our minds, written in our hearts and, and on display, uh, be, being worked out by faith in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the, this first bit of 
Haggai really begins by calling to a sowing to eternal joy. I'm sort of bannering the big idea of what I think this first sermon is. And honestly, I think it's, it's the point of the whole book. The, all four sermons come together to tell one big sermon. It's a sort of sermon series with the main idea that we are to sow to eternal joy. Let's look at the dispute that's made, because this is how God goes about it, telling this story through Haggai. The dispute begins in verse 2. Look at it with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So he presents the argument of the people first. He says, hey, this is your argument. This is, this is what you believe. This is your conclusion, and this is your behavior. The time has not yet come. Well, that's interesting. Is it because of great opposition that the time has not yet come? Perhaps there aren't enough resources in the land. Maybe there's not enough people who know how to build stuff in the land. Well, let's see if we get any insight into what's really happening, what's, what's behind their inability to, their argument, it's not yet time, not yet time, nope, not yet. Circumstances aren't quite right. Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, that's curious. I wonder where Jesus got the ability to ask good questions, right? He's been asking good questions the whole time. That's a good question. It seems to be a, a really good time for building just by observing the nature of your paneled houses and all the materials it took to build them and all the skilled craftsmen it took to, to leverage. It turns out it's not a circumstantial problem at all. Evidently, it's a problem of priority or perhaps a problem of the heart. Haggai chapter 1 verse 9. I'm skipping ahead because what's summarized and has already been read for us there at the end of this paragraph gets picked up again in verse 9 where he says, you look for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home it blew away. Why? Why? What's going on? He summarizes why this argument that you've made and, and your inability to give a good answer to the Lord's question works out. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Man, I just feel like Selah, you know? <laughs> Go and be the church again, right? I, I just feel like if we're listening, I got, I got a, let's go back to prayer of confession. Let's just start over, you know, because I got some business to do with that verse. I think this verse cuts to the heart with a clarity that's nearly unparalleled, particularly for our circumstantial moment, right? How often do we sort of silently agree together as a people? And that's important. You see, you, you don't have some individual who had decided not to make a contribution. You don't have just a set of leaders who aren't, because often it's the leaders who are the problem. No, this is a people who have all sort of silently agreed together, now's the time to build the houses. And then just keep building the houses. 
And then just keep attending to your household. Everybody, just silently, quietly agree together to neglect the Lord. It's a community problem that's scattered to their own houses. They've decided it's okay. Sort of get, get along, Karen, for me and mine, and to, to neglect the, the worship of the Lord. I would argue that what we have here is a cultural problem. The culture has, has grown up. Now, the culture isn't something you can point your finger at somebody, you know, the culture. Like, we are the culture. <laughs> we are those. It's, it's an unspoken agreement together to be a certain way. It may not be spoken, but you can see it. And if you ask the right question, which the Lord is prone to do, it starts to ring. And here's how, how it rings. The question arises, consider your ways. You, you've sown much and you've harvested little. This is how it goes at the end of verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, all right? Spend some time in reflection, looking around, considering, maybe journal for a bit, honestly. Consider, how has it been for you of late? You've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never quite have enough, now do you? You drink, but you never have your fill. You, you clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. You earn wages, and you put them in bags with holes. It's, it's a how's that going for you moment that the Lord is asking them to consider. The people have not been concerned for the ways of the Lord, particularly, and, and very specifically, God's design for worship. That's what the temple is standing for. God's design for his presence among the people, for them to live in his presence as a worshiping people, the temple. It's supposed to be the, the center of the community. From the moment the tabernacle was established with all the encampments circling around it to when that tabernacle and all that was in it was finally brought into Jerusalem and a permanent structure was built in the center of the city to be the life of the community where the Lord would manifest his presence in the midst of the community. It's supposed to be the center of their lives so that the people would orient every aspect of their culture, every aspect of their households around worship. So that worship wouldn't be like this thing that you do off to the side and then you live basically neglectful of worship lives but rather the whole of the culture would be centered on worship. Worship would be the center of the life, the presence of the Lord among his people would be an enduring, shaping force in the community. There's a, a definition uh, of worship that, that we've kind of used around Cross Point Coast. That worship is something like the, the enjoyments of the presence of the Lord. An enjoyment of the good gifts of the Lord that come from his generous grace. Because wherever the Lord is, there is lavishness, lavish mercy, lavish beauty, shining glory. That worship, enjoyment of his presence is supposed to be the deepest satisfaction of the people of the Lord. So we're going around, we're like, man, there's no presence. Man, if you, Lord, if you don't go before us, Moses says, I'm not going. You send us back to Egypt. I'm ready for slavery. Because that's what it is. 
to not be in the presence of the Lord, to not worship him, to not have him as our hope and satisfaction. Man, that's slavery. Just send us back. It's in their trust and dependence upon the Lord, their satisfaction in his provision that the people are to build their society. The foundation of their households is what is shown forth in the temple. The justice of their government is the presence of the Lord. The joy of their lives. Man, we're with God. I know my maker. Who cares? I know God, and he's with us. Another definition of worship, living in the presence of the holy God. Through the sufficient sacrifice of Christ with an attitude of reverence and awe that creates a, a living sacrifice of tribute and fellowship. That's in our partnership material. The core of that definition is at the beginning that worship is living life in the presence of the Holy God. And man, if you're in the presence of the Holy God, reverence and awe is automatic. It's shining radiance of the glory of God. Lives that are living sacrifices are what are called for in a life that's lived in the presence of the Holy God. Now, how can they expect to live in the presence of the Holy God if they neglect to build the temple in which the Lord has promised to make his presence known? Essentially, what they've said is, we're, we're, we're ready to live. In fact, we're ready to live it up. We're ready to live it up for like 30 years. We don't need the presence of God for that. The bottom line is this. The people have, and I don't think this is too strong of a word, the people have conspired together to pretend that they can establish their lives and find joy in their lives by seeking first their own private household happiness while neglecting the worship of the Lord as the center of their corporate life as a community together. I want to say the whole thing again because there's so many little points that we could sort of unpack that, that really Haggai is going to, if you read the rest of the sermons, you'll see he's just bringing this point home. They've conspired together to establish their lives on the, on the basis of their private household happiness. And they're neglecting that actually worship doesn't, doesn't create private household happiness. Worship actually creates a people, a corporate community together gathered around the house. You see, We know today there is a house. There is a dwelling place of the full presence of God, the very image of the invisible God. And friends, that house is the Christ. And the Christ went up. You remember in Mark? He went up out of the temple and went up, up on the Mount of Olives. And he did so in judgment. And he's saying, I am taking the presence of God with me. And the presence of God climbed up on a cross. And, and God gave himself as a ransom to be the center, the locust. The, the, the word locust is one of my favorites, not locust. It just, it just means place. The place of the presence of God is Jesus. And the community, satisfaction, gathers in concentric circles around him. And I'm listening to that. And I can't help but, but be nibbling on this sermon during this week, sort of chewing on it. I'm thinking, man, 
that ain't me. That's not, that's not my house. It's not my household. And man, as much as we, we talk about it, we want it, it ain't us. Man, God, we, we need to be called. We need to be called out. We need to be called to faith. If I could summarize it this way, they've, these people, we'll just talk about them for now, right? All right, let's go back to talking about them. They <laughs> have sought the things of the world rather than the things of God. Here's how Matthew, chapter six, verse 30 puts it. Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after those things. That's the, the organization of the other households out there. But, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. But you seek the first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. These have sought first what they shall eat and what they shall wear and figured that the things of God could be added later on when they get their households established. Then we'll be in the right circumstance to attend to the right ordering of the society. Well, at that point, the culture's built, the society's built, and you don't need Jesus. You already built the whole world for yourself. The more practical among us will say, well, that's all well and good. It's a very spiritual way of thinking, but you have to eat. I mean, you have to eat. You have to live somewhere. I actually don't think Jesus would agree. He'd been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, right? 40 days. Satan offered him bread. I know what my response would be. You know, God can work in lots of ways. (laughs) Maybe he's just working through the devil today. (laughs) Give me that bread, (laughs) right? That's real easy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You see, man doesn't live by bread alone. That's not how I live, Jesus says. He says, I, in the flesh, the incarnate Christ, hungry, body dies without food. I live by the word of God, by a deep dependence upon the provision of the promise of the Father. First faith, first faith, then Then, according to the provision of the Lord and the things we need in the world, they are added to us. But first, first, faith. That's a difficult pill to swallow. I don't really care for it much. It doesn't fit very naturally with the way that I think very practically. Does Jesus really mean that if we're starving in a desert and given one wish, we should skip the opportunity to ask for a loaf of bread. Does he really mean that? I, I got real practical. Like my, I'll let my imagination run with it. And I thought of like scenarios that I might actually be in in which I would have one wish and my body, my physical being needs something. I get one wish. Does he really mean don't ask for bread? Instead, does he really mean that we should use the opportunity to say all I want? is the voice of the Lord. You can have all the rest, the song goes. Give me Jesus. Really? Man. You can't eat a Bible. (laughs) I mean, you can. (laughs) It's tough. Make sure you don't have one of them leather ones. You're going to be chewing on that for a while. 
can, can a voice feed you? And then I was reflecting on that, just letting my imagination run. I realized every day of creation, which all that is became a was, begins with the words, and God said. Hmm. Haggai makes the argument this way. Verses five and six. Consider your ways. You've sown much. You've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. Clothe yourselves, you're never warm. You're in wages, bags with holes. You've tried it your way, how's it going for you? You've, you've had one wish and you asked for bread. How's it going? You sought to feed and clothe and shelter yourselves. It's not working out, is it? It's not working out. You never were supposed to provide for yourselves in that way. That was never supposed to be your wish. Friends, that's legalism. This is, on my own, I can provide for myself, even my own spirituality. I just obey enough, fill it up. No, you're not supposed to live by work. You're supposed to live by faith. Man, that's Habakkuk, right? The scriptures continue to make this argument throughout the whole of Bible. Just like here in Haggai, often the metaphor that's used is the image of sowing and reaping. I want to draw our attention to a few scriptures, okay? You might want to jot some of these down so you can go to them. Otherwise, they're also recorded on the podcast and the notes. You can find them there. Let's reflect on these things together. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8 goes like this. Don't be deceived. When you're considering, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And I'm reading that. I'm thinking, how does that connect to what this is? Because it says, if you sow much, they're reaping little. doesn't mean that they're not reaping what they sow. And it struck me that it's mixing metaphors just a little bit. They're reaping exactly what they're sowing. They're sowing to corruption. They're sowing perishable seed in the ground. You shouldn't be surprised that eventually it runs out and it doesn't satisfy. You see, you reap what you sow isn't a how much question. And oh my goodness, we, we just make a tragedy mess of the Bible so very often to feed ourselves. This isn't a sow more to Jesus. Drop a little more in the offering plate and oh, you'll get even more. And you get to keep 90% of that more as long as you keep on giving in 10% of what you get. And it's not a how much question. If you read Galatians, it has nothing to do with how much you're giving. It's a question of the nature of the seed that's sown. Some have tried to make this passage into putting more into an offering plate when it's saying you're putting it into the wrong plate altogether. Paul's central purpose in Galatians isn't making an argument to sow more. He's making an argument to sow entirely differently, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. You, you reap what you sow is a distinction between sowing in order to reap finite things rather than eternal things. Just sowing to, to reap that which is passing away, like seed in a barn, to things that are unfading, to sow to the flesh. You're going to reap rotten, decaying, dying, corrupt, fleshy things. 
Just so do the world. The world's passing away. Don't you know it? You sow to the world, you're going to reap the world, and it's going to pass away, and there you go. The sow to the Spirit, you'll reap imperishable, undefiled, unfading things. There's a few scriptures that reflect on this. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 17, it says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. Whoever loves wine and oil will not be rich. And I'm thinking about that one. You see, this... This, this world that we live in is a necessarily limited world. It's finite world. And if you love pleasure, your appetite with the things of this world is going to eventually run out of resources to consume. So if you sow to your pleasure, you're going to wind up being hungry. Because we're created with a limitless appetite. It never goes away. We're never satisfied. I would suggest that that's by God's design, and God's design is good. He's not cruel. He didn't, he didn't create us with an appetite that cannot be satisfied. His design in creating us is righteous and excellent. Surely, what that means is our limitless desire is to be satisfied, not by the world, but by something that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Man, those are three sweet words. I'm glad I thought of them. Well, okay. First Peter. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen. According to his great mercy. Great. Man, just look at the words that come before mercy in the Bible. Words like great, words like lavish, words like steadfast. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, to a reaping, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Oh, man, it's in a barn. It's kept. It's secure in heaven for you. All these things kept in heaven. Peter's making an argument that we are to live lives with an orientation to the divine, with a conviction that the Lord alone can satisfy our appetites, that we're to gain the whole world. We would die with stomachs full and souls empty. But if we sow to Christ, if we sow to the presence of the Lord in the midst of the people, if our community has ceased to conspire against the way of the Lord, but has begun to consider our ways and organize ourselves in concentric circles around the presence of the Lord, oh, souls full, inheritance kept, so that we can rejoice today in an eternal inheritance. We rejoice and cling to hope of reaping what is sown. We sow to the Spirit today, and we reap joy in the Spirit when? Today. Today. Now, Peter's honest, though we're grieved by various trials in this world, because we can see the praise and glory and honor of Christ that is revealed at the day of Christ. This day, difficult. You have various trials, but we have joy because we're sowing. We're storing up and we'll reap because he's coming. We grab that future glory and we grab it a hold with the eyes of faith and we pull that glory to today. Jesus, there's glory stored up for your people. Your glory. Titus chapter 3 says this. For we ourselves were once foolish. I mean, you remember way back then. <laughs> All right. 
Way back when, when you used to be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Well, from what? Slavery. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. According to, like, to what measure? According to what? What is the chord that plays the strain of the music of what is ours? What is the standard? Hope of eternal life is the standard. First, there's rescue from slavery to passions and pleasures. Jesus in the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8 says that the the sorny soil Bear, fails to bear fruit because the word is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Cares and riches and pleasures of life. That pretty much summarizes it. That pretty much summarizes what's going on in here with this guy. Haggai and the whole testimony of Scripture is drawing a clear dichotomy. There are those who bear or reap the fruit of God's word that is his promise of steadfast love and mercy, of provision and joy. And there are those who choke out the word, this hope, this promise, by seeking first the cares, riches, and pleasures of the world. And if you choose to go that route, if you decide, I'm going to provide for myself, I'm going to seek the world, and I'm going to reap the world, now you better be good. You better be way better than I am. Man, the piles of plans I have for me. I have lots of designs. I have lots of ambition for myself. I'm 45, and for some of you, you're like, whoa. And for some of you, you're like, oh, that little guy. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. I'm old enough to know this. It doesn't work. I'm not good enough. I'm not pulling it off. Man, you better be good if you're going to reap in this world. What does it look like? Can we get a glimpse of the future hope. Can you, can you let us see for just a second what it looks like to reap? Can you, can you embolden our faith? Isaiah 65, what's our appetite for an eternal future of sowing and reaping that are simple and sure? Isaiah 65, I'm gonna read verses 17 and 22. It goes like this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I don't think that's talking about just things. I think it's talking about ways, right? Like sowing much and reaping little. That's gone. That's done. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall, know, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Oh, I like that day. That's a beautiful day. I want to sow to that day. I want to reap that day. New heavens and new earth are designed for sowing and reaping. In the new heavens and new earth, we can take pleasure in the fruit of creation itself because the Lord himself dwells at the center of creation. And friends, we don't have to wait for that day to begin to walk in faith for that day. Jesus is in the midst of his people. Do you remember who called this gathering? Jesus is in the midst of his people. We begin 
to walk as a culture designed around the truth that he declares. His word tells us that we're family. And so we're like, man, I didn't think about that really before today. What if we, what if we walk like family and enjoyed what it is to walk into a room and be family together? And we hear more of his word and we say, oh, what would it look like to sow to that and reap a community together? What does it look like to maybe be a messed up, sinful people who are called to repentance and receive grace? And a reminder of that grace week after week in confession and communion together. There's one last thing that I want us to see in this first sermon. It's a call, again, to consider your ways. Haggai verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, and that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Consider your ways. And then he says, as you're considering your ways, I mean, you're just, basically you're not doing it. You've organized the whole culture and society silently and in quiet agreement together in disobedience and, and faithlessness. You, you consider your ways. It's not working. Now consider the pleasure of the Lord. And that little phrase jumped out at me. There's a, a book called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. We actually did a sermon series through the scriptures that are the focus of that book a number of years ago. I don't, I'm not sure exactly where this quote comes from, but Tim Chester quotes this. Since God does not need creation, you know that, right? God, God is eternally satisfied. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. Since God does not need creation, its whole reason for being must lie in its own goodness. He has no use for it. There's no pragmatic purpose for creation to fill up something that God needs. Only delight. He delights in it. He's an artist. You don't need art. But you delight in it. I find this to be one of the most shocking, transformative realities of revelation. The Lord delights in creation. He takes pleasure in it. At creation, he looked at the work of his hands and repeatedly he pronounced and observed, it was good, it was good, it was good. And he was taking pleasure in the work of his hands. The Lord's relationship is not utilitarian, it's not pragmatic, it's not a matter of consumption. He doesn't consume creation. He isn't using us, he's delighting in us. Man, doesn't that change everything? He's not using us delighting in us. This is what is so wrong with how passages like this are so often taught. Sowing and reaping are used as a trope to convince the church to give more money because God needs your money. God doesn't need your money. He don't need your money. He, he came up with the idea of money and he didn't even need it. He just thought, oh, that's cool. Currency. <laughs> God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need to consume anything from you. The Lord delights in your trust in him. The Lord takes pleasure in a people who have centered their lives and their community around the worship and around his presence. He delights in it. Here's a quote again from Tim Chester this time. The world is more delicious than it needs to be. We have a superabundance of divine goodness and generosity. Think about that. The world's popping with unnecessary color. Creation is flowing with diverse 
excellencies. Does this not point us to the reality of our God? He delights in these things. And he delights to display something about himself in the beauty of the generosity of these things. The very existence of creation is a tangible, touchable abundance of grace. Let's remember the fact that in a fallen world, there's such a thing as a people who call the name, who call upon the name of the Lord is itself a tangible evidence of lavish grace. That there is a church, that there are a redeemed people, is physical evidence of a redeemer. Grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How so? Well, according to the riches of his grace. When the existence of the people of God are a tangible evidence that our God is filled with grace. Abundant and lavish. And look what he does. He lavishes it upon us. Lavishes upon us. Dripping oil. Why does the Lord take pleasure in his people? I mean, that's a good question. Why? Well, look, Psalm 147, verse 10, it says this. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor in the pleasure of the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope, who hope in his steadfast love. What is the pleasure of the Lord? Trust in him. The Lord delights in trust in him because then he works and he lavishes and he says, man, I love my grace. Man, my grace, my grace is abundant. My glory shines and transforms. It's beautiful. You enjoy it. I do too. I delight, the Lord says, in the lavishness of my grace because we are the fruit of his steadfast love and mercy. The people of God are the product of generosity. The redeemed are God's harvest of God's covenant-keeping word. We are by his choosing because, because we exist by his grace. Why does the Lord delight in the redeemed? Because the redeemed exist by his grace. Our very existence is evidence of glory. Why does the Lord demand that the returned exiles attend to the building of the temple? Well, because he needs worship. Just like the God on the mountain, he demands a sacrifice. No, because the Lord delights in the people who trust in him. And he delights to lavish them with his provision. It's it's an aroma of his own grace and kindness that wafts up to heaven and flows down in blessing. He delights in the redeemed because he delights to save. Psalm 149.4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Now, how does he dress us up? I mean, it's, God has this possession. Just this, I, I got a new car, and this week, I'm thinking about my new car. I washed it. I never wash cars. <laughs> I washed this car. Bought special stuff to wash it with. And I'm walking around it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, what kind of decals could I? I literally, I'm, I should not be saying any of this. I'm walking around my car thinking, what kind of decals could I put on that car? 
And I found that you can get like blackout decals. I like black on gray, all right? This, all right? And, and you, can, you, can put, you can put a black sticker on the logo. And I'm walking around, I'm dressing it up because I like it. I dress it up. How does he dress up the redeemed? What's the clothing? What does he like to see when he looks at us? Saved. Rescued. Those are mine. My grace was sufficient to pull him out of slavery and give him lavish grace. This is a difficult sermon to land the plane on, but we need to. What's practical? Uh, how, what, so what do you want us to do? Well, just orient the entire whole of your life around Jesus. Go and be the church. I, yeah, it really is the application point. Uh, the, 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 the reality is a call to faith, not to legalism. I do not have a list of things. The elders have not sat down and said, well, well, well. These are the seven things that we know if you do these right then we know that now we're organized around Jesus. The call is a call to faith. Do you believe him to be lavish? Do you believe him to be saving? Do you believe him to be blessing? Do you believe in an internal inheritance kept for you? The call is a call to faith. I would like to offer you one way to think about that faith and to go with a reflection. Really, it's a call to consider your ways. Uh, in Cross Point Coast, we talk about the gospel rhythms, celebration, connection, community, and contribution. In the contribution rhythm, I, I would call that our contribution to the Lord is in light of his grace. That out of an overflow of the generosity of the Lord, we overflow into the generosity of our lives. The abundance of his grace creates a people of gratitude. Okay? So, one of the phrases that we use about the contribution rhythm is it's, it's a life that is leveraged. I like that word because it leans up against something and then uses that something to make movement, okay? We leverage what the Lord has provided by his grace to, to provoke movement toward worship. There are four ways that I would suggest that just about everything in your life, this is not a call to a 10% offering, this is a call of the 100% whole of our time, talent, and treasure leveraged to the glory of Christ. All of it. And that gets confusing, right? Because you're going to eat. What's it look like to consume to the glory of God? I would suggest four things. The first is sacrifice. There are some things that the Lord has provided by his grace to you that you are called to give up for the sake of your own soul. Burn it up. Make it gone. Give it away and don't care where it went. One of the places to do that, I think, is the offering. I think that part of the element, I think the majority of the offering is just a question, hey, family, are, are things being cared for around the family? Can, let's take care of the household needs, you know? I think a portion of the offering is burn it up, Jesus, burn it up. That's, that, that's a symbol that this money thing isn't good for my soul. Sacrifice. The second would be generosity. I mean, you could keep it, or you could give it over for the sake of another. And you know what that's like. You're a generous church. I've watched you do it. Just give it away. Not give it away because it's bad for you. Give it away because it's good for another. And man, you get to keep it because you get to watch it work. Beautiful things in another person's life. It's good. Generosity. I think a third is mission. Keep it, but leverage it. Like a back porch. God gave me a back porch recently, and it's all screened in. There's no mosquitoes. 
I'm like, God, I'm gonna keep this back porch. I like it. <laughs> but Lord, show me how to leverage this thing for mission. Fill up my back porch with people where we talk about what it's like to center our lives around you. And then finally, Thanksgiving. And this is another way I use the back porch. Just sat out there with Sandy yesterday. We weren't leveraging it for anybody's glory. All right? We weren't, we, weren't, we weren't giving it away on mission or something like that. But it was being leveraged for God's glory in that moment because it was Thanksgiving. We just sat out there together, sat on that porch, and we said, thank you, Jesus, for a little bit of rest. Man, you're good. And God's glorified as that gift of his was sanctified by Thanksgiving. I would suggest that more than likely, most, if not all of your life, falls in one of these four categories. If it's being properly leveraged, consider your ways. And know the design of the Lord. Haggai ends with a promise. A promise to Zerubbabel, and he says, Zerubbabel, you're like a signet ring. And that signet ring is, no, you're not, you're not just a governor, you're a king. And you're a king in a line, in a line of David. And there's a savior coming. Even building the temple, you can't save yourselves. There's still one that is needed. And it's the perfect one. And he is the means of your salvation. So leverage, leverage the rebel. Leverage high priest Joshua. Leverage people. There's a savior coming. Consider your ways in light of the coming savior. Heavenly Father, we pray and we confess, we consider in light of the fact that the Savior has come. We've seen his glory, glory of the one and only, the image of the invisible. And we have seen in him what it's like to leverage a life, the whole of a life, every inch of it, from sacrifice to thanksgiving and take up a crown in heaven. Lord, thank you for securing for us an eternal inheritance. I pray that we would walk as a people who are secure. And we can use our one wish, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. A cry of faith. Show us, Lord, how we've pretended. Show us how we've built little culture around here that we've sort of silently agreed together to let each other get away with a lie. And build something new by your word, by correction, by rebuke if necessary, Lord, by repentance for sure, and by faith, right in the midst of this people in this county. Lord, we thank you. We trust that you do this. And, and when it happens, it's miracles. So we thank you for that too. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.